Hello and welcome back to Wandering the Edge, a podcast about Ukrainian history with a spot of travel. Because although Russia has invaded and traveled to Ukraine isn't really recommended at the moment, uh, I'm talking about stuff outside of Ukraine. Uh, I'm your host, Larissa, and today we'll be looking at a bunch of traveling Ukrainians. But first, our normal introduction. I may swear in this episode, and if you are listening on Podcast Adder or Apple Podcasts, please leave a review or just rate it. You can all also find us on a number of streaming sites, including but not limited to Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, and of course the website wanderingtheedge.net, where you can check out any of the previous episodes and sources. Now, <clears throat> like the previous episode, I will include some travel and tourist information, but not in Ukraine itself, but rather in Paris and London, two cities that have drawn Ukrainians in for centuries. And two cities that I've frequented and one I lived in, and so have very fond memories of, of which some I will share with you. So Ukrainian immigration to France sort of began way back in the 11th century with Anna of Kiev, uh, the daughter of Yaroslav the Wise, and about whom you can listen to in episode 20. Uh, but it also included other formidable Ukrainians like Rehori Orlik from episode 25, Simon Petluda from episode 49, and Nestor Mokhno from episode 30. So there's been some sort of Ukrainian living throughout the centuries in France. But unfortunately, a lot of those Ukrainians have been assimilated into the Russian culture, seeing as the Russians have dominated France for a fair bit, especially after the Bolshevik Revolution, which threw out all of the monarchists. Because of this current war, there's about 100,000 new Ukrainian immigrants in France. Again, fuck Putin. And so with these many Ukrainians comes Ukrainian locations in Paris. The first I want to mention is the Tarashevchenko Park, which also has a small monument to Ukraine's national prophet. It's located at 186 St. Germain Boulevard. It's pretty big boulevard. And it's a small walk from Notre Dame and Musée d'Orsay. It's small and right outside of the Voldemort the Great Cathedral, the Ukrainian church in Paris. Now, when me and my husband walked by it years ago, it was a pretty cozy little park filled with screaming children and yapping dogs. And back in 2021, Ukrainians in the city decided to open up their own restaurant. Now, there's a shit ton of Russian restaurants, and some of them even have this BS about having both Ukrainian and Russian dishes, and how there's both Ukrainians and Russians working there because they want to promote peace between the two nations, but, well, I call bullshit, because the only way peace is going to work is with Russia withdrawing, and that's not going to happen when Russians fully support the killing of Ukrainian men, women, and children. But Oranta is all Ukrainian, and it obviously includes staple favorites such as borscht, pickled herring, salo, and a personal favorite, banosh, cabbage rolls, pierogies of various ingredients, including meat. Uh, potato pancakes, meats like chicken Kiev, and ribs, and some dessert options. It's located at 1 Rue de Marevaux, which is a few blocks north of the Louvre Museum. Now, Ukrainians in the UK have also had a long history of immigration, but again, it's not fully understood, seeing as we were always part of other empires. 
officially the first Ukrainian in England arrived in 1897. But after the First and Second World Wars, it increased tremendously with the largest communities in Bradford, Manchester, Coventry, Nottingham, and London. And as good Ukrainians, in 1946, they organized themselves into the Association of Ukrainians in Great Britain. Obviously, this latest wave of Ukrainian immigration has also been influential. The most prominent and delicious example of this new wave is the Maria Neo Bistro restaurant, and it is located at 275 Old Brampton Road near Earl's Court Underground Station. Now, it is a bit more posh and has a more modern twist to old Ukrainian recipes. We went with a whole group of Ukrainians from Canada and basically had like a little bit of everything from the menu. The Holodets lollipops were extremely interesting as we've never seen it done that particular way before. Now, Holodets is like a meat and jelly sort of thing. And if you do it right and add some vinegar on that stuff, oh man, it's so good. And while everything was delicious, it was actually the red cabbage and pumpkin soup that made us all go, holy shit, that's good. I think they changed their menu based on the season because we had this like black barley that was also really good that I don't see on the menu right now. It's a really cool little restaurant run by Ukrainians, staffed by Ukrainians, including Ukrainian chef Yuri Kovrashenko, and promotes Ukrainian uh, cuisine. They, however, don't have like bottles for sale. And I mean, when we bought several bottles, they had to figure out the math on that one for us. And the homemade vodkas are particularly good. So if you're in London, check it out. And now the most amazing place in all of London, the Ukrainian Social Club or just the club. It is located in a very posh area of London at 154 Holland Park Avenue between Holland Park Underground and Shepherd's Bush. It is also weirdly very close to the Ukrainian Embassy. So this house has several layers. You can rent rooms from it. It houses youth and educational organizations of which I helped volunteer in like once. A hall you can rent out and where Ukrainian concerts of various types are held. Um, This actually was the first introduction to a Ukrainian circle dance uh, that I had when I was living there. And its most important aspect, the pub. Once upon a time, it was like the only place you can find Ukrainian beer in London actually. And it's a ruckus place whenever Ukraine plays any football games. I have come home drunk many a times after celebrating something in this place. It's also like the center of gravity for any and all Ukrainians who have ever been in London. I have met friends from Canada, USA, France, and other English cities while just randomly stopping by there. They also make homemade Ukrainian food if you're in the area and want something to eat. For those of us Ukrainians who lived far from home, It was honestly just a place to relax, spend time with friends, and feel at home. Which is something you want when you're a wandering Ukrainian. So the first wanderer I want to highlight is Sofia Yablonska. Born in 1907, she traveled the world and became Ukraine's first travel blogger. Not really, she was a travel photographer and writer, obviously. She was born into a priestly family. Her father was the priest of a small village of Hermaniv near, uh, near Lviv. But he supported the stupid idea of Slavic unity and was pro-Russian. 
He was so pro-Russian, he dragged his wife and four children to Russia during the First World War, and they got all the way to Taganrog. Along the way, her brother, Miron Mikola, died of typhus. Sofia wasn't a fan of this type of travel, but her dream of a great tour was ingrained in her at a young age. It all began when she wanted to know the origins of vanilla, and she thought this, quote, I will never see it, that distant country that exists like us, only on the other side of the globe. And maybe one day I will fall into a very deep abyss. Maybe I will break through the ground and still get to the country where there is vanilla, end quote. Anyway, reality was a brutal bitch for Sophia's father, and soon the family returned to Halichina. And after some begging and pleading, he received the parish of Kozyova, then Orava, and finally Yalenkotove. Uh, he lived alone, though, because his wife had to work and was all the way in Krenitsio, which is now in Poland. Their children were also separated from their parents, and Sofia first stayed with relatives near Buchach, then moved to Ternopil with her brother Yaroslav. The 18-year-old began working at a movie theater, which she ended up managing because it was owned by her brother, and studying at a teacher's school and taking up tailoring and sewing courses, bookkeeping, and eventually moved to Lviv to go to drama and trade school. In 1927, she decided to move to Paris and become an actress, as all good 19-year-olds are want to do, I guess. At first, she began washing office windows and even um, starred in a small film role. But in Paris, she met with Ukrainian Orientalist Stefan Levinsky and Parisian artist Christian, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, uh, Claire, who was traveling to Morocco. <clears throat> now, she was advised against going to the African continent, especially to the Sahara, which was ruled by the French. But Sophia ignored them and went to Morocco anyway. There, she wrote her book, The Charm of Morocco, in which she describes the motions, colors, and customs of the country, and it was all in Ukrainian. It was in Morocco that Sophia met Nadia, some Russian asshole who asked her, Are you Scandinavian? No, I'm Ukrainian. Apparently, Nadia's lips, quote, quivered contemptuously at that reply. So nothing changes, ever. Her travels in Morocco reveal otherwise unknown worlds. For example, when an Arab man uh, mistook her for a boy, she was playing chess. He was so apologetic, he invited her to visit a harem. And here's what she wrote about that, quote, For the first time today, I'm glad to have been born a woman. Because European men have never had the chance to look at the inaccessible secrets of the harem, end quote. And it was this dual perspectives that also allowed her to view other situations differently. For example, she could see the arrogant attitude of the French towards the Arabs as having experienced that same arrogance from the Russians. But she also characterizes the Arabs as, quote, wild, free, and passionate children, end quote, which is weird because she too was, quote, was called the wild Ukrainian by a French official. She also didn't like tourists because of their superficial influence on a city like Marrakesh, quote, I still don't like tourists. Why? Because they capture the beauty of Marrakesh with their silhouettes and their cameras breathe black spots on the clear walls of buildings, end quote. But she loved to be descriptive, and after arriving in the city, she created a little shelter for herself from the sun with some straw on the roof of her building to watch the panorama of the city itself. And here is how she described it, quote, The wind brings um, the mixed scents of flowers, vegetables, candles, lamb, and honey. 
drunken with the smells the sounds of monotonous music and the chirping of birds covered with blue sky i will draw for you the majestic beauty of marrakesh and the life of the arabs drunken with these impressions the strong smell of sweetly bodies baked lamb candles oranges screaming dancing black and arabic music i came back from the arabic entertainment area my head is spinning like a wheel of a toy windmill end quote now from marrakesh sophia traveled to the sahara desert which included the dangers of nomads on camels when she described as quote the danger looking like a hundred uh the danger looks like what sorry the danger looks with a hundred of its feverish eyes drags me to itself and tracks me end quote she would need to escape from the help uh, with the help of some local frenchmen and local um, berbers but escape she did and managed to get back to france there, she received a contract with the Société Indochine Films et Cinema, where she was given a film camera and told to go to the Far East and make documentaries. When in China, Sophia had some difficulties. The first of these was that the locals didn't really trust any white people because of their shitty history with French colonialism. But they also didn't trust the film camera, which to them was a threat. And she writes this, quote, Every a Yunnan resident considers a meeting with a European to be a bad sign. And even more so when it's a European with some weird machine looking at them with its shiny eyes, end quote. They also wouldn't take money to be filmed as this apparently meant that she would own their soul. So she had to come up with a plan. She rented a room overlooking a busy road. One half of the room was an office for an import-export business while the other half was used to film the local inhabitants of the of the region alongside that busy road. Quote, In the end, I managed to film not only the daily movement of caravans, porters, carts, the march of convicts, but even a wedding march and a cer ceremonial funeral of a Chinese uh, Yunnan rich man. Quote. She would regularly leave the French administrative control and travel throughout China being surrounded by local people, communicating with them and asked for their opinions and perspectives. Obviously, she also self-reflects during her travels and repeatedly discusses her white European perspective, quote, My European white sensitivity plays a great role in my observing because the Chinese, set in their traditions, perceive life and its manifestations in a totally different way, end quote. And in this way, she also explored the notion of culture, and their differences, quote, culture as I see it is a totally unstable notion. In the eyes of the Chinese, we are wild, ignorant people, even people without a soul, without thought. The Chinese treat our civilization, our inventions, our progress as empty things without any durability, any sense, despite the fact that they need them some, invite, despite the fact that they need them sometimes for themselves. Your inventions haven't enriched your life, which made it more complicated, an old Chinese man said to me. And I am afraid that this time he has told a deep truth, end quote. So Sophia published three travelogues, The Trauma of Morocco in 1932, From the Country of Rice and Opium 1936, and Distant Horizons in 1939. Her memories and short stories were published only after her death in 1972 and in 1977. And apart from those two countries, she also visited Port Said, Djibouti, uh, Colombo, Saigon, Hue, Hanoi, where she lived for three years, Laos, Phnom Penh, uh, Angkor, Bangkok, 
Penang Island, Singapore, Java Island, Perth, Sydney, Auckland, Lake Waika, I can't say this, Waikaramona, Wellington, and Rotatonga Island in Bora Bora, where she lived for a few months. And she then returned to Europe via America, San Francisco, and New York specifically. In 1933, during her Chinese documentary adventure, she also found her husband, Frenchman, Jean Odin, who became an ambassador of France to Indochina and lived there until 1976, uh, 1946. In 1938, she had a son in China. In 1939, another son in Vietnam. Apart from her published books, she also wrote articles, which were published in Ukrainian among the Ukrainian women's magazines of the interwar years, Jinocha uh, Dolya, or Woman's Fate, and Novahata, New House, and gave public lectures when she was in Halichina as she was returning from China. She never said she wasn't a Ukrainian woman and would publicly try to explain the differences between Russians and Ukrainians, including this, quote, I started explaining to him the difference between us and the Russians, drew a map of Ukraine and its border and its neighbor countries, so that he better understood its location. Eventually, I told him that there were around 40 million of us and that Ukraine was one and a half times bigger than France. All of these explanations I know better than a prayer because I often have to repeat them to French and other strangers who know nothing about our existence, end quote. Unfortunately, she would never see her homeland again, but would also keep three things with her on her travels. A traditional Ukrainian doll she was given in Lviv in 1939, Tarashevchenko's Kobzad poetry book, and a small bowl with a Ukrainian description of Make Yourself at Home. In 1946, her family went back to Paris and she began working as a florist. In 1948, her eldest son died during the Algerian, Algerian War, and in 1955, her husband followed him. She would die on February 4, 1941, near Paris when she was in a car accident. This Ukrainian woman traveled the world, documented everything she saw, and published all the, her, her thoughts and words. And throughout all of her life, she was an outspoken Ukrainian. Now, this next woman came from nobility and ended up marrying into Siam royalty. She was Katarita Donitska, who was born in Lutsk in 1886. Her father, a chief judge of the Lutsk district court, died when she was only two, and after this her mother sold the family property and moved to Kiev. There, Katarina graduated in 1904 at the yeah, Women's Gymnasium, and then she moved to St. Petersburg to live with her grandmother. Now, some people say she was poor because her father died when she was young. But, well, if she could afford cave in St. Petersburg, I highly doubt that that woman was very, very poor. Anyway, she began studying at the medical nursing school, which was a popular vocation at the time with the upper-class ladies as Russia began their war with Japan. Now, in March 1905, Katarina would attend a grand ball, and it was there that her life would change forever. There she met a young foreigner, invited to the ball by Tsar Nicholas II, and he was, and I'm going to screw up this name, so I apologize in advance, His Highness uh, Sakrabonsk Buhanath, uh, Prince of Siam, son of King Rama V. Now, Siam is now Thailand. Anyway, he graduated from the Imperial Mage Corps and was getting ready to study at the Academy of General Staff in Russia. She then, for some reason, volunteered to work as a nurse in Manchuria, which is like other side of Russia. 
But the prince didn't back down and would actually send her letters and flowers, yes, in Manchuria. And after the Russo-Japanese War, she returned to St. Petersburg, where he officially proposed. She agreed, but with one stipulation. She was going to be his only wife. I guess the royals could marry many women at that time. He obliged, but they had to go all the way to Istanbul to get married as Russian Orthodox priests or dicks. Again, no change. After a honeymoon in Egypt, they went to Singapore, where Chakrabonsk uh, left her and went to warn his parents about his marriage. They obviously didn't approve. But Karatsinina adopted to court life, learned Siamese, and charmed her in-laws. In 1908, she gave birth to a son, Chula, who two years later became the first to inherit the throne when his grandfather died, and his uncle was crowned Rama VI, but was childless. It was now when Katarina and her little family traveled back to Ukraine. Two years later, however, Katarina found out her husband had an affair with a 15-year-old niece who was then elevated to royal wife status. Katarina was naturally pissed off and filed for divorce. But with a divorce came a difficult separation with her son. He would never see or forgive his mother and didn't talk to her again. And when her ex died in China in 1920, she attended his funeral, but didn't return to Thailand, instead of moving to China to live with her diplomat brother and work there for the Red Cross. There she met American Henry Clinton Stone. They got married, moved to Paris, and then the United States. They too would divorce, and she would settle near Paris, where she died in 1960. Her son would move to the UK, to move to the UK and graduated from the University of Cambridge. He became a historian of the royal house of Chakri. He had a daughter, uh, Narissa, who wrote about her traveling Ukrainian grandmother. And her son, Hugo, was apparently Thailand's most popular rock star. And that is how a Ukrainian noble became a royal and then sort of lost it all when someone's penis couldn't stay in his pants. Now comes a history about someone who, honestly, I'm still in doubt about, but he apparently seemed like a real person. Like, there's information about him out there. Uh, He was born in 1918 in the village of uh, Chanechiyad, where he also attended a local school and graduated from a veterinary college in 1937, the same year he was drafted into the Red Army. In 1940, he graduated from the Odenberg Aviation School. He served as a long-range bomber and was a flight commander of the 10th Guard Long-Range Aviation Regiment. On June 22, 1942, while returning to base after bombing the Oral Airfields, his plane was hit and caught fire, but he and his crew managed to survive. In early August 1943, he conducted over 200 combat sorties and was awarded the Order of the Red Banner and Hero of the Soviet Union. He's even listed in a 1973 book listing all the heroes of the Soviet Union, even with a brief description. And here it is. Quote, on April 18, 1944, the crew led by Ivan Datsenko, that's his name, bombed the Lviv 2 railway station, where a lot of enemy manpower and equipment was concentrated. During the combat task, the fearless Falcon died a hero's death, end quote. And so he became a local hero with a youth pioneer brigade being named after him. 
But when his village wanted to name a street after him, and even were thinking of renaming their entire town in his honor, the Communist Party stepped in and said, eh, no, no. But why? Well, there was a secret order that came from Moscow to stop commemorating Ivan Datsenko. Why? Well, it's because the Ukrainian was a bit of a wanderer and managed to get himself into Canada. The man wasn't dead after all. Ivan survived his plane being shot down, was imprisoned by the Germans, but escaped in 1945 and ended up in the American zone of occupation. From there, he somehow reached Canada, settling outside of Montreal, where he fell in love with a dark-haired Native American. Ivan received permission to marry his love, but only after the chief of her tribe said he was to become a Mohawk member, and after the chief's death, Ivan would become a new, the new chief as he had no sons. Now, how the hell did this happen? Well, in 1967, as part of the Montreal Exhibition, the Soviet Union delegation requested that the Canadians show them their Native Americans, and so the Canadians took them to a Mohawk tribe. They were all sitting in a big wigwam, and in came a tall, strong, handsome, and young tribe chief in his full Mohawk glory. The Soviet delegation asked the interpreter, Tell the chief that he is very good looking. And the chief replied, In Ukrainian, How are you? Please come and see my rooms. The chief then switched to Russian and called upon his wife and asked her to bring out some pierogies and Ukrainian vodka. They drank and ate, and the chief asked the Soviets, So, do you know any uh, Ukrainian songs? And then he began singing It's an old Kozak song. It was then that the Russians asked who the hell he was. And he answered, I'm Ivan Datsenko from Poltava. The Indians gave me the name Piercing Fire from their chief, but my English name is John McNober. See, is this story real or not? I don't know. I, I can't offer the life of me figure it out. Like there's nothing about him after this like little episode. There was a film made about him, and it's called He Who Went Through Fire. If you want to see more, you can look it up. But again, no clue, none whatsoever. Now for the next wanderer, we're going to have to go back a bit to the 1800s. As he was a Navy man, Yuri Lysiansky was born in 1773 in Nizhny from an old Cossack military family. His father, an ex-military man, turned local priest, as was, his, was also his teacher at the local parish school. But when Yuri was 10, he and his brother Anani were accepted to Kronstadt Marine Academy. This was considered one of the best educational institutions in the Russian Empire, and his days were divided into two blocks of time. And the morning was marine and mathematical studies, while the afternoon was Russian literature and foreign languages cool beans. In 1788, he graduated and made, a, and made a midshipsman, don't know what that means, in the Navy, and was sent to the Battle of Ravel in 1790. This is now Tallinn in Estonia. Three years later, he was made a lieutenant and sent to England to serve as a volunteer in the British Navy. He would serve on the HMS Osiu frigate, captained by Robert Murray, and sailed to North America. Along the way, he witnessed how the British chased an enemy ship when the American fleet sailed in their path on their way to France with provisions during the French Revolution. His journey would take him to Halifax for a refit, cruise along the coast of Chesapeake Bay, and then end up in the West Indies for the winter. There, he caught yellow fever, 
and Captain Murray offered his own cabin for the young Yudi to recover. In 1795, he went back to England via Boston, Savannah, and Philadelphia, where he had an audience with the one and only George Washington. Yuri was the first Ukrainian to have an audience with an American president. He then sailed to Halifax and then back to England in 1797 aboard the Cleopatra. From there, he went abroad the goddamn French names, the Raisonable battleship and journeyed to the Cape of Good Hope, where he uh, was appointed to the Scepter, a 68-gun ship. He would regularly travel into the interior of the country and a year later would sail with Scepter from the Cape towards Bombay. It was there that he was dispatched back to Russia by orders of Paul II, so Catherine the Great's son. He arrived back in Russia in 1800 and appointed commander of a frigate and knighted the military order of St. George, 4th class, which, boo to that shit, but whatever. It was in 1802 that the Russian Imperial Court decided it was a good idea to organize the first Russian circumnavigation of the planet, which, I mean, was a bit late, but okay. This came about because the Russian-American company, which was established by Catherine the Great to promote the fur trade between Russia and America, now they were having a difficult time supplying their colonies in the northwest of America, as it would have to go by land to Ohotsk and then across the Bering Sea, and so they thought it would be faster to go via sea all the way. But would it be faster? No. No, it would not. It was a stupid idea, but whatever. Their plan was to go from Kronstadt, around the Cape Horn, which is south of Chile and up to North America. And since this plan was clearly not well planned, the Tsar stepped in and also assigned it as an exploration and circumnavigation request with an additional goal of getting a Russian ambassador to Japan. Two ships were equipped for this, the Nadezhda and the Neva. Nadezhda was to go to Japan, while the Neva would proceed to Kodiak in Alaska. Neva would be commanded by our friend Yuri. He bought and equipped both, both ships in England and set sail in 1803. This voyage would take him three years and would, he would see Hawaii and be the first to describe the Hawaiian seal monk, have an island named after him in Hawaii, the Lysiansky Island, visit Easter Island and would map the coast of the Kodiak and Sitka Islands where he also witnessed the local cultural life of the Alo. Aluts, Eskimos, and Tlingit. If I miss said that, I'm sorry. He would also criticize the Russian government for severely oppressing the local indigenous population, which again, nothing changes. He also wrote about his voyage. And while I could regale you with description, like descriptive writings about the exotic animal aboriginal life of the 1800s, I'm not. I'm actually going to talk to you about food problems. Why? because I didn't know any of this and I find it fascinating. So here's a quote from his journal, quote, We now found that our fresh water began to smell rather strong. It was therefore exposed to the air in a tube made for the purpose and worked with ostrich's purification machine, quote, end quote. I didn't know what this was, and then I googled it, and it's like a water purifier, but I didn't realize that that was, like, that old. So anyways, and then this is from August 1803, he found another problem, quote, everything else on board being now overhauled to be more safely stowed, I found, to my very great regret, the whole of our sauerkraut in the highest state of corruption. 
this proceeded from the negligence of the company's servants who had put it into large and improper casts. We thus found ourselves deprived of the quantity of this valuable antiscrobutic mm, vegetable that would have been more than sufficient for half the voyage. End quote. Hmm. Yeah, sauerkraut. It's important. It's a, it's a very important cuisine. I like it. Now, it was in Brazil that he would get fresh provisions, which included excellent water, plenty of European and Indian corn, a large hog, a middling hog, a suckling pig, a bullock, don't know what that is, a fowl, a duck, a bunch of onions, thousands of lemons, a pound of brown sugar, 28 pumpkins, or sorry, 58 pumpkins, a turkey, a bunch of bananas, 144 pounds of rice, 144 pounds of wheat, 32 pounds of coffee, four bottles of rum, I think that's a bit low, and 72 pounds of manioc. I also learned that their main and foremast could actually rot, which is what happened in February of 1804, when they had to spend some time on some island cutting down red oleo trees and having his mast put in place. See, you learned something. Anyway, the Never was the first to return to Kronstadt on July the 22nd, 1806, and Yudi was awarded the Order of St. Vladimir III degree. In 1807, he commanded a squadron in the Baltic Sea and named commander-in-chief of all private yachts and vessels of his imperial majesty. A year later, he com uh, commanded a 74-gun battleship, but soon retired from the Navy in 1809. He died in 1837 and has several other honors in his name, a peninsula in Alaska, a bay, a river, and a cape along the North American shore, an underground sea mountain, uh, and peninsula in the Ohotsk Sea. Uh, see, without this Ukrainian, Russia wouldn't be circumnavigating shit. Now, for the last of our wanderers, we'll take, we'll look at one who went the furthest. Cosmonaut Pavel Popovich. He was born in 1930 in Uzin near Bielatserkva in the Kiev Oblast. His father worked in the local sugar factory and his mother stayed at home. He described his childhood as this, quote, Like all children at that time, I herded geese, cows, and horses to earn money. It was especially hard and I had to work a lot after the war. There's a large airfield near Uzin and that's why I dreamed of becoming a pilot and of course a fighter. Because times were difficult, instead of studying, I had to work I had to go to work at the sugar factory in the night shift. I worked from midnight until 8 in the morning, and at 9, I was already running to school. In this rhythm, I only lasted a few months. Then there was the Bielitsatic Craft School, specializing as a redwood joiner, and in parallel, there was evening school. After graduating from school, we were sent from, uh, from Moscow itself to Mag Magnitogorsk to study at the Technical School of Labor Reservists. At first, it was very difficult because everything was taught in Ukrainian at home, end quote. He would eventually get into the Military Aviation Academy and served in Karelia in, eight, in 1957. Pavel saw his first satellite in space and knew that one day he too would fly there. In 1960, he was selected to, group train, uh, to a group training to become the first cosmonaut in space. However, it would be Yuri Gagarin who was ultimately chosen for that fateful Vostok 1 flight. This was because, as Popovich himself said, quote, According to the policy of the time, a pioneer in space had to be Russian. You couldn't get away from this. Sergei Pavlovich Korolev said, 
Gagarin and Tito will be the first to fly, and you guys will personify the friendships of peoples, a Ukrainian and a Chuvash, end quote. The Chuvash was uh, Andrian Nikolaev, and the Chuvash people are an ethnic Turkic group. In 1962, he commanded the Vostok 4 space flight alongside Chuvash um, Nikolaev and became the first Ukrainian to leave planet Earth. He was also then selected to command one of Soviet Union's planned moon landings, but this eventually was scrapped. Almost 10 years after his first outer space um, experience, though, he would be selected to command his second flight uh, among the Soyuz 14 in 1974. It was this flight that was hard for him, because he didn't really keep up with the training in between. But we do get to look at his logbooks from that flight. Quote, 33rd rotation of the Earth. Earth is looking healthy. Dear friends, thank you for your attention. I feel great. When I land, I will tell you a lot of interesting things. Your golden eagle, his call sign. 34th rotation. Untied completely. Getting into the hardness is easier than getting out. 35th rotation. At night, with the ship's light, nothing can be seen either on the ground or in space. Even the stars disappear. But during the day, they go out. A paradox? You couldn't do anything. Space. 36th rotation. Control of well-being. Pulse, 56. I drank water. Similar to ours, the Dnipro. Gave a comparison of time. and Started to sneeze. I laughed to myself. If Taras Bulba had sneezed, then the ship would probably have gone out of orbit. End quote. Now, Taras Bulba was a famous fictional Cossack figure created by Nikolai Gogol, and the 1962 Hollywood film version starring Yul Brenner is amazeballs and everyone should watch it. Now, Popovich was a very proud Ukrainian, and he was proud to be the first Ukrainian to visit space, and would even regularly sing Ukrainian songs up there. And when he came back to Earth, he was active in the cosmonaut training centers, but was removed from the list of active cosmonauts in 1982 and became the deputy chief of scientific testing and research at the center. He died of a stroke in 2009, and as any good Ukrainian, he's buried in goddamn Moscow. Because heaven forbid we have any of our heroes buried on our own soil. Again, fuck Russia. And that is the end of this episode dedicated to the history of some wandering Ukrainians. Now, I will be taking a break until May for Easter, so there's just, like, one episode that's not going to be fe- uh, featured, because we still celebrate it on a different calendar, at least this year, but probably not next year, and I think it'll change as per the news taken from a very reliable source called My Mother, because I don't actually follow religious calendar changes, and I, I don't know what's going on. I'm still not 100% sure which Christmas we'll be celebrating this year. I'll just do as all Ukrainian girls and do whatever my mother tells me to do. Anyway, new episodes will be back in May. But now because Russia has decided to invade Ukraine, we need help. Please donate to any humanitarian aid relief you can. I've also posted on my website some some suggestions. Please uh, take up the call and ask your local representatives to help Ukraine. Uh, Send us weapons. Get NATO in there. Um, Give us help please remember to follow us on facebook and instagram at wander edge ukraine check out our website wanderingtheedge.net for source informations and other interesting extras and if you're listening on um apple podcast or podcast addict please rate and review and leave a comment about anything even any weird historical tidbit you have about your cultural peoples and if you're listening on all the other streaming sites thank you very much 
And as always, happy wanderings, my friends, and Slava Ukraini, and Hoyam Slava.